Good morning. It is good to see you all, um, especially now as we prepare for this time of Advent and really Christmas season that is ramping up as we remember the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, would you please go to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, and we will be in verse 1 to 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. And as you're turning there, the story is told of Mrs. Sarah Pittman. Sarah Pittman was um, engaged to her husband, who would be her husband, John Pittman, in the year 1940. They lived in um, the Midwest of the United States. And they'd, they'd heard about this war that was happening in Europe, and they were like, nah, that's a European thing. However, the doors of war, so to speak, came crashing upon their country, and John Pittman decided that he would serve his country and protect his wife and his progeny, his future children, by going to fight in this war. Because there was a madman in Germany called Hitler who threatened quite literally the existence of the known world. Now, back then, there was no email or Snapchat or Instagram. So the only way to communicate was by handwritten letters, which was an arduous and slow process. Letters would take a very long time to actually get where they needed to get. He joined the war in 1943, and by the summer of 1945, good news came. The war was over. Excellent. But still no John Pittman at home. And because letters took a long time to get there, because the carnage was so huge, she wasn't sure if her husband was alive, dead, coming home, not. And so she waited. Now, if you are Sarah Pittman, you're prob probably praying a couple of prayers. Primarily, Lord, please, please bring my husband back home. But there's no way of knowing if he will come home. And then one morning, if you wake up and open the door and John Pittman is standing in front of you, what's the emotion you are going to be overcome with? Talk to me. Joy! And that is what I hope to leave you with today. Because in our text, a promise has been made. But the people waited a really long time. And in their defense, they weren't really sure that this promise would come through. Partly because of how long it took, but partly because of how confusing it seemed at the time. But as we read through this, what I hope you are left with is a deep sense of joy at this promise-making, promise-keeping God who has promised a king to save his people. In fact, specifically, he has promised a king who will turn our gloom into gladness. Read with me from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought you to contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land, in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff, sorry, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, 
the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Would you help me step out of your way? Would you speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, please make us through your word. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. A promised king. Specifically, a king who will turn our gloom into gladness. Our darkness to light. Our pain into joy. That's what's being promised in this text. We have to kind of put ourselves 733 years before the birth of Christ. So almost 3,000 years ago. The story is Israel had betrayed God. Israel had turned their backs on God. And by the time we are in the book of Isaiah, there are now two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom has been overrun by the kingdom of Assyria, a very powerful kingdom. They were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. And now Assyria has their eyes or their sights set on Judah. They are coming for Judah. The king at the time was a guy called Ahaz or Ahaz, however you choose to pronounce it. Ahaz was a very intelligent man, but a very foolish man. He was very smart, but he constantly rejected God's word. Ahaz was told by the prophet Isaiah not to form an alliance with Egypt and not form an alliance with these foreign powers that God would actually take care of his people, that God would stave off or ward off the Assyrians. And Ahaz said, forget that. I'm going to make my coalitions with these people that I was not supposed to make coalitions with. Oh, by the way, Ahaz was such a wicked man that he would not only worship other gods, he took his own child, his own son, and sacrificed his child and son to a foreign god. And the way the sacrifice would work is you'd take that little baby on a god whose hands would be hot with fire and place the baby there. That was the king in Isaiah's time. A wicked, messed up man who plunged the rest of the country in his wicked ways. See, Ahaz is a little picture of the whole of Israel. It's not like Ahaz was worshipping these false gods and sacrificing at these false altars, and Israel was like, no, get rid of Ahaz, we want a better king. No, Israel was like, this is great. 
This works very nicely for us. And they joined him in his rebellion. In that context, the Assyrians are coming. Israel is in trouble. And what I hope we see is why this promise matters is because, number one, they have a problem. <laughs> Judah has a major problem that causes them gloom. In the midst of that problem, God issues a promise. And he brings his promise to bear or to fruition through a person. This promised king is necessary because there's a problem. If you're looking for three mental handles, there's a problem. Judah, Israel, and all humanity has a problem. In the midst of that problem, God gives a promise. And lastly, he brings that promise to bear through a person. So what is the problem? Start with me just a little earlier in Isaiah chapter 8. Start with me from verse 16. God speaking says, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Isaiah says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And then this is what God says will happen to them. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. God has promised that they will face gloom and darkness, that the way they have turned their back on God, God will turn his back on them. The way they have turned their faces away from God, God will hide his face away from them. It wasn't just Ahaz. The whole kingdom had jumped into this sin. And because of that, they received the opposite of God's blessing. See, for every Jew, for every good Israelite, for every good member of the house of Judah, they knew the blessing of God from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Make his face shine upon you, not hide his face from you, right? The Lord watch over you. The Lord lift up his countenance, his face to you and give you his peace. But what God is promising them now is that they would have the exact opposite of that. What God is promising them is because you people have been inquiring of mediums and necromancers, yet I'm here, you are about to face my wrath. Now, the, the common practice which was happening at the time is rather than go pray and ask God what is the Lord saying, rather than listen to the word of the Lord, they were consulting these mediums, basically witches and sorcerers. And there's this little phrase used there, necromancers. That literally translated means those who caught death. Necro means death. When something is necrosed, it has died. Necromancers are those who conjure up the dead. And God is like, wait, you're going to go to people who, in his words, chip and mutter. 
because they'd act like they're seeing dead apparitions and then talk about what they're seeing. It was a satanic, demonic thing they were engaging themselves in. And it's almost like God is asking them, are you for real right now? <laughs> are you for real right now? You are going to leave me, the living God, to go consult necromancers? You're going to leave me, the truth, to go consult satanic lying spirits? That's what you're going to do right now. And I wish I could say that Israel or Judah's response was, oh no, we see the error of our ways. Their response was, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And God, what are you going to do about it? That's what it means to turn your face upward. And God was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do about it. You are going to fall into darkness, a thick darkness. It's kind of reminiscent of the kind of darkness that fell on Egypt. Remember that? When God was judging Egypt, he sent a palpable, thick, death-like darkness. He says, that's what I'm sending you with. You are going to walk not in the light, not in life, but in distress and in death. I'm going to send your way a powerful and inescapable enemy. And in fact, so powerful will this enemy be that Naphtali and Zebulon will be the first to fall. Those are like the outer edges of Judah. They were the parts closest to Assyria. One side was bordering the Mediterranean Sea, the other side the Sea of Galilee. And it says, those two, that's where I'm going to start my onslaught against you, Israel. And Assyria will crush Naphtali and Zebulon of Galilee. What you will be left with is anguish and inescapable gloom. And it didn't matter what Judah did at this point. God had hidden his face away from them. Their creator, their king, basically told them, have it your way. And the Assyrians came for them. Do you see the problem here? You see the problem that Judah has, the problem that Israel has is their only hope is no longer their hope. The problem is they're in deep darkness. They're under Satan's tyranny by their own choosing. They have preferred their sin to their savior. And now they have to deal with the consequences of that. And it's easy for us to read this and go like, come on, Judah. Necromancers, really, guys? You could pick up different things? Really, mediums and spiritists, you're going to choose death instead of life? Ah, but friend, that's you and I as well. Outside of Jesus Christ, we have the exact same problem as them. God has hidden his face from us. We have willfully sinned against him. We might not consult mediums and spiritists, but we probably consult something else like ourselves. And say, no, God's not worth listening to. Outside of Jesus Christ, we probably consult our favorite YouTube inspirational or motivational speaker. We probably consult what's happening around us and literally listen to anyone and anything but God. In doing so, we have made ourselves the ultimate necromancers. We have made ourselves those who caught death because we have rejected life. God is life. To reject life means to embrace death. And instead of hearing God's blessing over us, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance toward you and give you his peace. We are literally hearing the opposite 
of that. As one theologian put it, outside of Jesus Christ, here's what you and I hear. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back on you and remove his peace from you forever. That is the ultimate gloom. A darker life hath never existed than a life where God has turned his back on you and on me. We go to those who chip and mutter and reject the fountain of all truth. And like Judah, God asks us, are you, are you for real right now? You're going to choose darkness instead of light. And friend, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you felt this anguish. If you're here and you're hoping that coming here will relieve you of this anguish, I'm really glad you're here. But coming is not what's going to relieve you. We have better news. Hang on. It gets better. It, he doesn't leave us in the problem. He never does. What he does next is give a promise. Like Judah, we are in a problem, a jail of our own choosing, if you will. Listen to the promise in Isaiah 9.1. But there will be no gloom. Where there was gloom, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought you to contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious or he has honored the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The idea there is because Naphtali and Zebulon were close to Assyria, they were brought into contempt. In other words, they were humiliated because they were the first ones to fall to Assyria. But he's saying from that same place that was generally called Galilee, from that same Galilee, he is going to not only honor Galilee of the nations, he's going to bring some kind of deliverance, some kind of light, which is what he says next. The people who have been walking in darkness have seen a great light. The people who dwelt in a land of darkness, and some versions say a land of the shadow of death of darkness, have seen a great light. On them, a light has shone. He's promising no more darkness. What does that mean? That light is going to break in. It has echoes of creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and dark. And the Spirit of God hovered above the waters, and God said, let there be light. And light broke into the darkness. God himself is going to insert himself into this darkness. In this darkness of Satan's tyranny and sin and gloom, God is light. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 1 John 1, 5, God is light. There's absolutely no darkness in him. Basically, God is going to bring his word and his presence into this darkness, into this sin, into Satan's tyranny, into this oppression, into this Assyrian mess. God is going to step in and bring light. And not only that, verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. So let's do a quick Bible study with verse 3, yeah? Every time you see the word joy or rejoice or glad, just shout it out, okay? So here we go, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They, they joy, friend. 
Let's try this again. They uh -huh, rejoice before you as with at the harvest as they are when they divide the spoil. Do you see the dominant emotion here? When light broke into the darkness, joy. When they opened the door to their darkness and saw God, like Mrs. Pittman, joy. And this is a glorious thing because it means even in the darkness, God is working for their joy. God is working to bring them light. He has multiplied that nation. In other words, he has grown the nations. He will be faithful to the nations. You see, at this time, Israel was this tiny little blob. Judah was an even smaller little blob. And in Judah, there were always those who were called the remnant. There were those who did not bow their knee to the Baals. There are those who did not worship foreign gods and false gods. There are those who rejected the ways of Ahaz. They, unfortunately, also have to walk in the darkness. That makes sense? The whole nation has gone against God. They are part of the nation. Even though they are not actively rebelling against God, they are part of that nation. And this nation, true, faithful Israel, would look at themselves as a little remnant. But God is telling them, no, 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 step back. You might be a mere remnant, but if you look at it critically, you're a multitude of the redeemed. Because light is breaking into the darkness, that they may have joy. And he's working for their holistic, complete joy, and uses two images in verse 4 to explain that. He talks about joy coming from harvest and joy coming, rather in verse 3, joy coming from harvest and joy coming from winning a war. In other words, he will provide for them, he will sustain them, and he will defeat their foes. Do you see it? He even takes that same thing further in verse 4, talking about how, like Egypt, he has taken off the yoke off the yoke of oppression, off this burden of slavery. He has taken it off them. He has fought for them. He has fought a more powerful enemy than them. And he uses Midian as an example in verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This story of Midian comes from Judges chapter 6 to 8 where Gideon and his 300 men went to fight an entire army. That army was way bigger, way better, much better trained and equipped than them, and God gave them really a kind of bad battle strategy. Rather than be stealth and kill a few people at a time, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go with trumpets. I want you to go with torches. They're like, okay, to face this army. <laughs> This is how you know, if you and I were in the army, there would have been a problem. Because your first question would be, swords, Lord, maybe spears, uh, do we have something better than torches and trumpets? He says, no, torches and trumpets. Okay. They take their torches and trumpets. They've not been spotted. Then God tells them, here's what I want you to do. Blow your trumpets and give away our position. Thanks, God. Oh, and then light your torches. So if they can't hear you, now at least they'll see you. How is this a battle strategy? <laughs> but if you follow the story, they blow their trumpets, they light the torch, and what happens to the army? They kill each other. Lest the, the 300 men and Gideon say, our torches were so amazing. They would always know God gave us this victory. He says, I'll do the same thing for you as I did in Midian. 
Yes, you're small. Yes, you're weak. But the same way light broke into a dark army and confused them, I am your light. I will break into your darkness. I will give you victory over Satan and over sin and over enemies you cannot escape. Trust me, I will do it. And again, friends, you have to see the compassion of God in this. He doesn't wait for Judah to get their act together. He runs to Judah in the darkness and promises to give them light. And in verse 5, he even ramps that up some more. He says, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood and burned will, rather, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, he's not just saying there's going to come an end to this war. He's saying there's going to come an end to all wars for all time in all places. Think about it. If there's no war, what do you need a sword for? A sword has one purpose. You're not going to like cut down a tree with the thing. Burn it. If there's no war, why do you need a helmet? You don't need a helmet. Throw it in the fire. <laughs> Burn the thing. That's the image God is saying. He's saying, look, wars will cease. I will bring an end to all of these wars. That's the promise I'm making you. Final, unending, unyielding peace will be eternally yours. Now, at that point, if you are in Judah, and even now, you're probably going, Gloria Dios, this is fantastic. Just one question, God. How? How is this going to happen? You've said you're going to break with light into our darkness. You're going to protect us. You're going to free us. You're going to end wars. Lord, how is that going to happen? This is a great promise, but how? How are you going to end these wars? You see, in our minds, wars are very real things, very painful things. In different parts of the world right now, there are wars. But friend, every single war is just a symptom of the ultimate war. Ever wondered, why do people fight wars anyway? Why did Hitler think it would be okay to just take over Poland? Why did the Assyrians think it would just be okay to run over Israel and the Babylonians after them and the Persians after them and the Romans after them? My own tribe, kind of just annexed another tribe. Why do people do, what's up with that? Why do we have wars to begin with? Answer, because we are at war with God. Every other war is a symptom, a physical manifestation of the real war we are fighting with. We have picked a war with God and a war with each other. This is what Aubrey was preaching about last week. The first marital war you ever see, you see when? Genesis chapter 3. Suddenly, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone becomes this woman. Right? That's where wars come from. Every single war. And friend, you and I outside Christ are at war with God. That's what sin is. It is to tell God, I declare war. I declare myself king in your universe, and you can't do anything about it. And even in that, God says, I will bring an end to that. And I will give you light and joy and gladness. No more darkness. None of Satan's tyranny. Fellow believer, do you struggle with joy? I don't just mean happiness based on happenings. 
No, I walked on the street. I found a thousand dirham. Yay, I'm happy. I mean joy. Joy being the presence of Christ, even in your pain. Not the absence of pain, but the presence of Christ in it. Do you struggle with joy? Because he came and he's working for your joy. Here's what might help. Remember your redemption. Remember that light broke into your darkness. Remember that God took off the yoke of oppression of Satan. You are not under his control anymore. God took off the yoke of control of sin. You are not under sin's control anymore. God took off the yoke of this world and temptation off you. Are you around it? Yes, but it's no longer your master. Remember your redemption. You are not hell-bound. You are heaven-bound. You struggle with joy? Rehearse God's promises. His promises that apply right now. That right now he will never leave you nor forsake you. Even in the middle of your sin. Rehearse God's promises. That right now Jesus is praying for you. <laughs> On your worst day, that's what he's doing for you. On the day when you want nothing to do with him, he still wants everything to do with you. Rehearse his promises. That the only thing waiting for you is a crown of glory. An indestructible body. A life and a world with no pain and no death. Rehearse those promises. And lastly, relate with his people. Psalm 16.3 says, For the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. They are all my delight. You want joy? Come around God's people. That's what family exists for. We encourage membership because we want your joy. God commands membership because he wants your joy. He wants you to be around other Christians who will bear your burdens, who will carry your pains, who will laugh with you, and who will laugh at you. Yes, it is a good thing when you can take people laughing at you. It's what families do, isn't it? It's one of the ways you know a family is healthy. When we walk into church, we all know who's going to sing the loudest on a Sunday. Especially the guys on this side. And we laugh at him. I mean them. That's what family does. <laughs> Nowhere else can you laugh about that. That's not going to happen in your workplace. It's going to happen with God's people. We sing and laugh and enjoy one another as we hold hands and weep with one another all on the way home for the joy that is ahead of us. We relate with God's people. And like Judah, we should remember, though we are a mere remnant, Around us, above us, is a multitude of the redeemed. My friend says Christians are not like the sun, they're more like stars. You walk outside and everything you see is lit up by the sun. But at night, there are these stars, they kind of look small and dinky and weak. He says Christians are kind of like that. They're never the biggest, the baddest, but they're always beautiful. You and I might feel like a small group here in the Middle East, here in this big world. But right now, this is not the only worship service happening. Amen? There's a service happening in heaven. And who is happening in that service? The multitude of the redeemed. Or as Revelation puts it, 10,000 times 10,000, myriads upon myriads of all the redeemed since Christ. All of them. Abraham is up there. My grandma is up there. The multitude of the redeemed is there. Oh, and by the way, even on this earth, 
these little stars, these little stars in different parts of the world are a multitude. You are not alone. That is cause for joy. Because when you think you're alone, then you get gloomy and depressed. Understandably so. But you're not alone. This is the promise he makes. But we still don't know how. How is he going to bring this promise to bear? And his answer is, I will bring my promise through a person. The person God will use to bring this promise and undo our problem is a child. Look at verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A child is the person who will bring in all of these promises for God's people. Now, when you see that phrase, child, it, feel, it feels kind of weird. It's like we've been talking about wars and God and God's people, child. It kind of feels like a, the child is just parachuted into the conversation. Well, the child is first talked about in chapter 7 of Isaiah. And in that chapter, God makes a promise to the house of David. And he says, I will give you a sign, house of David. The virgin shall give birth, and the child's name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. In chapter 9, he says, guess how these promises are going to be brought about? By this child, that Emmanuel, that virgin-born child, he will be a child. In other words, he will come the same way every other child comes. They are born. Human beings generally don't hatch. We are born. But he's not only a child who is born, he's a son who's given. He's earthly because he's been born, but he's divine because he's been given to Judah, given to God's people, given to humanity. And the government will be upon his shoulders. What does that phrase government mean? It just means the rule. His rule, his governance shall be upon him, his shoulders. Earlier, his people were bearing the heavy burden of oppression under evil rule on their shoulders. Now, his people are shouldered by him as he delivers them. This promise is coming through a child who will be born and given. His rule will be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That idea of wonderful counselor means supernatural counselor. Supernaturally wise counselor. Isaiah is probably hoping that they think of this child as being even wiser than Solomon. That he will have divine wisdom when he counsels. The exact opposite of Ahaz, who had diabolical wisdom. No wisdom to talk about. This child, divine wisdom. He is mighty God. In other words, he is God himself. And directly translated, he's a mighty warrior who defends God's people, unlike Ahaz, who plunged them into a war. He's everlasting father. Now, at that point, we're usually like, wait, is the son the father? I thought there's the father and the son. and the... Here's what's going on there. Everlasting father, talking about him being unending, but more importantly, talking about his fatherly care and his discipline over his people. That unlike the kings of Israel and Judah, unlike Ahaz, who killed his child, this child will be born, given, and this child 
will grow up and rule in a way that is fatherly, caring, and where necessary, disciplining. That he tells God's people, no, you may not worship Baals. No, you may not put up a Shara poles. And if you do, as king, I will enforce God's law. And that's an act of love. It's an act of kindness. That's a fatherly act. This is what this child will be like. And he's called Prince of Peace. Prince of Shalom. Shalom meaning wholeness, peace, health. For a people who have been struck by darkness and war and pain, this child, this son, this king brings shalom with God and with each other. And of the increase of his rule or governance and peace, there will be no end. You see, when we think of kingdoms increasing, when we think of kings advancing, we don't think they advance in peace, right? Kings advance by conquest. They don't go to another people and say, hey, we like your land. How about we reach an agreement? No, they come and kick you out. Governments and kings increase by war. He will increase by peace, not by war. And there will be no end to said peace. It will grow and grow and grow. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. You have to hear how that sounded to the original hearers. Because for them, David's throne had been split. Here is Isaiah saying, oh no, the throne will be brought back. Because technically, the only person who ever sat on David's throne, earthly speaking, was Solomon. It was David, it was Solomon, then after that, split. And here is Isaiah saying, no, 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 no. There'll be one. And he will rule in righteousness and justice. Unlike the bad kings who rule in wickedness and unrighteousness. And he will do this not only now, he will do this forevermore. Why? Last verse. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal is God's passionate, committed, loyal, fiercely loyal love. For his glory and his people. It's what the Bible means when it says he's a jealous God. Because he's so passionately committed and loving of his people for his glory, he will go to war with whatever robs his glory and whatever is to the detriment of his people. This is why he'll defend them. This is why he'll vanquish their enemies. This is why this child, this son, this king, this Emmanuel is going to do this. And this was good news for Israel, that a deliverer was finally coming to get rid of the gloom and darkness and give them light and joy. And he would be called Emmanuel. So they would cry, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel, redeem thy captive Israel. And they said that for year upon year upon year. They said that wondering after 733 years, is this thing still coming? And then, in the middle of their cries, this happened. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee, named Nazareth, this is from Luke chapter 1, verse 26, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, 
of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what, what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Did you catch it? For a people walking in darkness... Jesus is the light of the world and the darkness will not overcome it. For a people under Satan's tyranny, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. For a people under the dominion of sin, God made him who had no sin to become a sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. For a people walking in gloom and the, the finality of death, in Christ we can say, Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For our people at war with God and with others and with ourselves, Jesus is our peace, that he might create in himself one man in the place of two, making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he preached peace to those who are far, and to those who are near, believer, you have peace with God because this child, this son was born and lived and died for you. Unbeliever, let me talk to you for a minute. Do you have this peace? Do you know that you know that you know if you died today and you stood before the omnipotent God who is presented as a warrior, who goes to war with all of those who reject him, that he would look at you and say, peace, be still. Ah, if you don't, you're in really good company. Because that was all of us. If you don't have that peace, that's great. We were all there with you. But we heard about a child who was born, a son who was given, who was born of a virgin, who was born in the house of David, lived a perfect life, would be crucified by wicked men like you and like me, put on a cross, and in that act, we thought we were killing the Son of God unbeknownst to us. This is exactly how he would reign. This is exactly how he would bring peace. He rose three days later and now offers you peace with God. Stretched out arms saying, welcome home. Come home. Come have peace with me. And if you repent and believe, if you turn away from your sin and trust in him, he will be your king. Believer, that means not only do we have a king, we've been given a kingdom assignment. Did you notice there where it said of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end? For those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, he's using us to bring in that peace, to increase his peace until he returns. That we go out with the gospel, especially in times like these where literally they're singing our songs out in the world, and be like, we pull a Philip on people. Remember how Philip met this guy who was reading from Isaiah and couldn't understand what he was reading? And Philip said, let me tell you what you're reading about. We do that with them. As they are singing, oh come, oh come Emmanuel. We're like, hey, do you know who that Emmanuel is? 
Let me tell you who he is. He's God with us. He's God in us. He's God for us. And he can be God for you. We have been given that assignment to help increase the peace. Believer in Jesus Christ, are you struggling with peace? Again, remember your redemption. Remember, you have a wonderful counselor for your everyday to day life. He's not just a wonderful counselor for someday when you die or someday when you're like 65. I mean, right now, right now, he can give you counsel through his word. Right now, he gives you counsel through the people of God. Right now, he gives you counsel through the preaching of God's word. Right now, he's giving you supernatural wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. Child of God, are you struggling with sin? You have a mighty God, a mighty warrior who will go with, to war with sin in your life for your own joy. Are you struggling with the government and rule that you face in this world? I don't care what country you come from, your government is probably not that great. Now, there's a spectrum of not great. There's fairly bad, then there's really bad. Then there's just abject, right? Even if you think my government is okay, eh, just give it about five years, you'll probably dislike the next guy. It's like that old 80s song. Meet the new guy, same as the old guy. That's just how governments are. Ah, but there is a government whose increase is in peace, who rules over you, who, by the way, is a greater authority than whatever earthly government you're under. For you, you get to sing, my king is Jesus. And he rules over me with nothing but love and care, even if the governments of this world don't. Now, do we honor the government? Of course we do, Romans 13. But our ultimate rule has never been, will never be under a man. And lastly, child of God, do you know how zealous God is for you? <laughs> do you know how passionately committed he is to your good? It's so much passion that someday he will crack open the sky and that child will show up as king of kings and lord of lords for you. And that same zeal he has, he gives you to go out for other people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Grant, O oh God, that today we would put our trust in you, the king who was promised to deliver us from our problem. Help us trust in you, regardless of what we face in this life, knowing that because you came, knowing that because you died, knowing that because you rose and because you reign and because you will return, we can trust in the gloomiest days of our lives that you will in this life and or the next give us gladness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.